And open your Bibles with me this morning, if you would, to Romans chapter 12, yet again. And if you're visiting, I should tell you we've been on a series in the book of Romans um, since uh, a year ago, January, and we've made it up to chapter 12. I intend to go all the way through, Lord willing. Uh, We've been over these verses, but there's so much in these verses of scriptural and historical significance, I thought we needed to dwell on it for a bit more. And so Romans chapter 12, I'm going to read verses 3 through 9 this morning, and it's about the church. It's about the doctrine of the church, which is so sorely needed in our culture, even in evangelical culture today, it seems to me. And it seems to me as we look into this, we may find that we have departed from the original plan for how we were to govern ourselves as God's church and, um, and to express the gifts of the Spirit that he so graciously gave us for one another, to edify each other with. So I'll begin in verse 3 and I'll read down through verse 9. And so the Apostle Paul writes to the church at Rome of the first century, For I say... Through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function. So we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, and he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness, let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Oh, Father, we thank you for the word of God this morning. Amen. And so we can see that the very plainly, what are the I think most useful illustrations in all of Scripture is the church as the body of Christ, as the hands and the feet and the mouth. Shall the hand say to the foot, I have no need of thee, Paul asks rhetorically uh, to the Corinthians. Everyone has a different gift. We're not to covet the gift the other person has, but to develop the gifts that we have, and then to contribute to the body of Christ. The body of Christ could not have continued for 2,000 years without the gifts of the Spirit. We never would have made it. We wouldn't have made it through the first few decades of persecution without the gifts of the Spirit. Because what the gifts do is they encourage the body to seek out God's purpose for them and to live it out, really, no matter what. And so Paul writes, verses 4 and 5, For as we have many members... In one body, but all the members do not have the same function. It really is a body, isn't it? There's many members. They don't have the same function, but they are yet one body. But we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Friends, we belong to one another. That's how it is. So we come again to these verses and... We come again face to face with Paul's teaching on the doctrine of the church. We will call it ecclesiology. When we talk about salvation, we talk about soteriology. From the Greek soterion, that means savior, we call it soteriology, the study of salvation. When we get to the study of the church, we, or at least me, I call it ecclesiology. It's the next phase in the logical progression of this great epistle that Paul's written to us. So we'll take a little review and see how, as Paul is teaching this great church in this great city of the ancient world that he did not found, but yet we find out in the end that he names a lot of people who he knew, 
other Christians who immigrated or migrated there and were in that church. So he's very familiar with them, and he loves them, and they love him, and he's teaching them how to be the church. You write a letter to a church when you're not at the church. So he's not there. We don't know if he actually visited that church. But the next phase of the logical progression of doctrinal instruction for the saints in Rome is what chapter 12 and 13 and 14 are about. Now, Paul used most of the first 11 chapters of this epistle to teach on the various doctrines of the Word of God as they pertain to salvation, as I've said. He began with justification by faith. We have been justified by God, and that has to do with forgiveness. We've been made right before God justified by him we have been saved by God for his personal use and we're saved by the gift of faith no faith friends no justification right he gives us the gift of faith the power to believe in the redeeming atoning work of Christ on the cross and so we read from chapter 5 of Romans where Paul wrote therefore having been justified by faith we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have access. Friends, if faith has power, it has power to give us access to God. And that means access to his purposes through the word of God. I read the word of God in college with no understanding. I studied it as a young non-Christian, an unbeliever, and really it was just like any other piece of ancient literature to me. Until the Spirit of God comes over you, and you're justified, and you suddenly recognize that everything written in the Word of God really is God's Word, it's God's mind, and it teaches us about God's purposes for us individually and corporately. And so we have access by faith into His grace, in which we stand and rejoice. Friends, it seems sometimes like there's not a lot to rejoice about. And I could say that today if I look at the world in a, in a global, with a global perspective. But there's plenty to rejoice about in our own lives and our relationship before God. Count it all joy, James wrote. When you fall into various trials, count it all joy. It's part of the joy. And rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So we are saved. We're justified before God by the faith that he gives us. We can't give ourselves faith. God gives us the faith. We were selected. We were chosen by God for the privilege of being joined to Christ as members of his body, which we celebrate celebrate our membership today. And so he wrote this, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, he writes, whom he predestined, these he called, whom he called, he, these he justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. And that again is from Romans chapter 8, 29 and 30. So he's justified us by faith, and he's made us part of his body by choosing us for the privilege. The book of Ephesians says, before the foundation of the world, we were chosen by God. We've been given great assurances. So the book of Romans gives us the great doctrines of assurance. We're not only saved, we get to know it. We get to know that we're saved. We're not like, gee, I hope when he comes, uh, I'm really saved. No, we get to know it. There's a witness of God's spirit within us that assures us. And the word of God, friends, if you begin to doubt your salvation, go back to the assurance verses in the scriptures. And from Romans chapter 8 also, we begin with the very famous first statement. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why now? Because he already told us in chapter 5 we were justified by faith. So now we have assurance of that. There is no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. And then he takes it further. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Friends, you have power over sin. 
We have power over sin. We are given the power to resist sin. Sin's a bad thing and it offends God. But you're not under the law. So if and when you do sin, it still cannot break the covenant you have by the blood of Christ with God. Sin cannot separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. In fact, he says it so gloriously at the end of chapter 8, I'll turn there, where he says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, (laughs) friends, this life can't separate me from Christ, and neither can death separate me from Christ and all those who have faith. He says, I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come, whatever happens in your future, if you have faith in Christ, which gives access to his grace, which is his favor, right? Nothing can separate you from God. Things present, things to come, height nor death nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. And then he says, I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. (laughs) And he goes, of course, into chapter 9 there. But the great doctrines of assurance that accompany the doctrines of salvation is what makes it so joyous to be a Christian. You can go through the difficult times and know that on the other end, you're still going to be with Christ. Friends, it's a sin-cursed world, and we will suffer in it. But be of good cheer, he said, right? I've overcome the world. We've been given great assistance. Another doctrine, the Holy Spirit is with us always, will never leave us nor forsake us. He indwells us, and he empowers us as we gather together. He's here with us, and the Holy Spirit is God. And he's here to empower us to resist sin, to love one another, even though sometimes we're not very lovable, right? He's here to teach us, to guide us, to direct us, and so he writes, likewise, the Spirit helps in our weaknesses. Yeah, we're saved, but there's still some residual weaknesses that we have to deal with. And then he says this, very strangely, we do not know what to pray for as we ought. He assumes that we don't really know what's good for us. But the Holy Spirit knows. And so because he's in us and cares for us and knows that we have access to God by faith, access to his grace by faith, he fills in the weaknesses. The Spirit himself makes intercession for us. In other words, the Holy Spirit, who is God, is praying to God on your behalf. And he's fixing up all the mistakes you're making in your prayer life. Now, he may not tell you what those mistakes are. That's the hard part. I wish I'd know what the, what the deficiencies are in my prayer life. But he's making them, and we can't know them. Why? Because they're in groanings that cannot be uttered. <laughs> he makes intercession, intercession for the saints according to the will of God. So the Holy Spirit can't pray against the will of God. He prays for the will of God. And so at this point in the epistle, Paul shows that the same Spirit that lives and dwells within the heart of every saved person, every person saved by faith in Christ, has also blessed us with certain responsibilities to live for Christ. Right? Work out your own salvation, he said to the Philippians, with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So with all of these great assurances, with all of these great graces and blessings and the knowledge of it, He gives us responsibilities. And so Paul asks rhetorically in in chapter 6, well, first he says, shall we sin that grace may abound? For when sin abounded, grace abounded much more. And then he anticipates some knucklehead will ask, well, then shall we sin that grace may abound? And he says, certainly not. Or God forbid, if you're reading the King James. How shall we who died to sin live in it any longer? It's not part of our life anymore, friends. It's an intruder. And don't make them comfortable, right? Matthew Henry once wrote something to the effect that when sin first comes into your home, he comes as a guest. 
You let him in. And if you let him stay long enough, he becomes a lodger. In other words, he's not going anywhere. And if he stays even longer, he becomes master of the house. Be careful playing around with things that God has forbidden. And we'll talk a bit about that as we go through this today. The saint is called to incorporate into his life spiritual thoughts where there once were only carnal thoughts. And he talked about the carnal mind being enmity against God, right? In the, in the uh, epistle also. Friends, we're to sanctify our thoughts. That means set them apart. Set them apart for God's use. What did he say to the Corinthians? For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God. For pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. And bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. This is a battle for your minds, friends. Bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. So the saint is called to clean up his thought life. James gives us the progression. Sin always begins with a desire, right? And its desire is for you. So a whole new lifestyle is given to us if we'll only partake in it. That's what saint means. It means you're set apart. Hagios in the Greek. You're set apart for Special use. There's nothing particularly religious about the word, right? A whole new lifestyle with new behaviors opens up a whole new world for the saint. We don't sit home in our underwear on Sunday morning drinking coffee and reading the New York Times. We do that later in the afternoon. We come and worship God. We come and worship God. Friends, that's the best witness the church can give to the world today. Christians are people who come out on Sunday morning and sing praises to God. A beautiful Sunday morning. There's so many other things you could be doing. I guess riding bicycles is the, is the big thing today. I can't ride one. You know how they say you, you can't forget how to ride a bike? I forgot. I, I can't ride. I'm hoping the Holy Spirit fills in the weakness, but it hasn't happened yet. So the saint must worship God, as we're all the way up to Romans 12 now. I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Present your bodies. Not just, worship isn't just spiritual. It's physical. We come together. We present our bodies a living sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Now, I... Went over that quite a bit, the reasonable service. It's um, logikos, reasonable, right? Thoughtful, intellectual. Ser- uh, service means worship service. Latria is the word there. Your intellectual worship. We worship with sanctified thoughts. We're to come to church. When I asked my old friend Dave Kimball one time, who was a preacher his whole life, I said, Dave, what's the difference between preaching and teaching? And Dave said, well, I'm not sure. He was sure. But he said, well, I'm not sure, but if you ain't teaching, you ain't preaching. <laughs> no, you've got to learn something, friends. So it begins, <clears throat> our new lives in Christ begin with worship and are filled with worship. We worship once or twice or however many times corporately in a week, but every day we worship personally and individually before God, and we kneel before him. He talked about prayer. He said, go into your room and close your door and pray to your father who is in secret, right? And your father who is in the secret place will reward you openly. We worship even when we're alone. We always worship God. And do not be conformed to this world. That's difficult, but it's best done by those who come out to services on Sunday morning. Be transformed. In other words, it's something that you do. Be ye transformed. It's something that you do. It's it's not automatic. And how do you become transformed? By the renewing of your mind. The old thoughts, the old things have passed away. All things have become new. That you may what? Prove. He says that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Friends, we've got some proving to do, apparently. 
So the verses we're focusing on today are so that the children of God can get about the business of proving what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Proving the purposes of God. It seems to me that's a corporate mandate. I'll take that, David. (laughs) Um, Now, we do that as individual saints, but he's talking here corporately. He's talking here about worship and the church and the using of the gifts. Proving. Dokimatso. That's how you would say it if it was Italian, but it's Greek. Thank you, David. David can always tell when my throat's dry. It's just a... Dokimatso. The word to prove means to authenticate, to make it real, to make it manifest and visible. All right? And so the saints prove the will of God by living as the family of God. Or as the apostle writes in our verse today, we're many members, we're one body. And so the apostle moves on from the elementary teachings, from the fundamentals of salvation and sanctification, to the teaching of how we are to conduct ourselves as members of the local churches which Christ himself has established. Friends, hook up with the local church. The whole New Testament is written to churches. If you weren't in a church, you wouldn't have received the letter. Now remember, the canon wasn't uh, finished for, for uh, six or five or six decades after Christ was resurrected, and it wasn't recognized as the canon for several centuries. And it wasn't distributed for several centuries after that, and you couldn't read it in your own language until the Reformation. So the place you would hear the gospel would be in the church. To the saints who are in Philippi, he writes, with your elders and deacons. To the saints who are in Corinth. And don't let denominations steal from you the title of saint. You are the saints. You don't get a yellow ring around your head. But you get a seat in the church when you become a saint. So the saints come out and the saints prove the will of God. Many members, one body. And so members hook up with a local church. There was a church in Rome. There was a church in Corinth, one in Thessalonica, one in Laodicea, right? These churches were all over. That was Paul's business. That's how he evangelized. He went about and planted churches. He told Timothy, I'm going to leave you in Ephesus and teach these men the word of God. Be a workman, rightly dividing the word of truth, he told them. Preach in season and out of season, right? He told Pastor Titus, for this reason I left you in Crete, to appoint elders in every city and order the churches. Churches have order. They have elders. They have deacons. They have independent government within them. And all these things are queried by these verses that Paul gives us here today. And so like every teaching of the word of God, never be content, friends, with just knowing it. It's not an intellectual exercise only. Never presume that the doctrines of the church are there for our intellectual enlightenment alone. That just makes us smarty pants. <laughs> the doctrines of the New Testament are there to be lived out day to day in the lives of the saints as corporate members. The word is melos. You know, it, it amazes me when we talk about membership sometimes. And I've had people say, but I don't believe in membership. I'm thinking, we are many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function. Being many, one body in Christ and members of one another. There's two verses, he said members three times. Melos, it's a real thing, being a member of Christ. How are you a member of the body if you cut yourself off from the body, Right? So like every teaching of the word of God, we actually live these out. We don't just learn them and know them. Never be satisfied with just being saved. Do something. Give your gifts to the church. How did James say it? Show me your faith without your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. And how did the Lord Jesus say it? Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. No, we live out our faith. And so what do we have in this passage? 
We have talk of members. It's presumed that we're one body expressed in the gathering of the saints of a particular locality, in this case, Rome. Rome was the biggest city of the ancient world at the time. Ephesus was a close second, right? And the other cities, Corinth was a big city. These were all really metropolitan areas. Philippi, I think, was a military outpost. I think the Romans changed the old Greek city to a military outpost. But they each had their own character, and they each had their own church. They went locally to church. And so it goes without saying that the saints of God gather together in Christ. And so the great doctrine of the church comes to light, and then he tells us this. Having then gifts, differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. Let us use the gifts. If it's prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. I'll not go over what each of these means because I've labored that the last couple of weeks. So friends, we've been, we've been saved. We've been taught. We've been enlightened and edified and assured. And here in these verses we find that we've also been given gifts. We've been gifted with specific, specific powers, friends. You have a specific talent or power that contributes to you living out your purpose of your life for God. And so as newly gifted members of the church, we're now newly challenged with a great calling, and that is use your gift. We ought to use our gifts for the edification of other believers. Friends, we use our gifts out of love. Nobody gets paid. You know what I mean? If you had to pay all the members, you'd never have a church. (laughs) That's part of the strength of it, is people contribute out of love to the church. We're to use them in obedience to God. Oh, by the way, when (laughs) when I say no one gets paid, I do get paid. I just want to point that out there. We don't believe that, we believe that those who live by the gospel... Uh, those who preach the gospel ought to live by the gospel. In fact, um, I saw another uh, gentleman, a preacher, in that same park I talked about earlier in Savannah. And he was a couple of black gentlemen. They were there, and I looked over, and I saw the Watchtower magazine, so I knew what I was, what I was up against. And, he said, and it said, take the word of God for free. And I went over to the gentleman, and I said, why would you give it away for free? It says, he who preaches the gospel shall live by the gospel hallelujah and he embraced me and thanked me and called me a young man (laughs) i'm 67 but i'll take it no we live by the gospel so paul's not content only to speak of salvation he moves on to sanctification and sanctification begins in the structure of the church as the word of god commands us Now, these verses have been variously seized upon over the centuries to justify some of the organizational structures that have become common today. All right? I'm not just a Baptist because it was convenient. I'm a Baptist because I believe in certain Baptist beliefs. I believe they're traceable to the New Testament and even to John the Baptist. Right? And one of them is the churches are governed independently. There's no structure outside of us to govern the church. That's the way it's done. It comes from within the church, according to Pauline teaching. But they've been variously seized upon to justify certain extra ecclesiastical organizational structures, Um, even political structures over the years. And I want to talk about and trace some of that history for us a little today and answer some questions. Um, These verses have been used to determine modes of worship as well as modes of church government. In that regard, I would ask you to consider the overall atmosphere of the New Testament statements regarding church order and corporate worship. As you read through the New Testament and you see the admonishments of uh, the Apostle Paul through the epistles, what is your general sense of how the church is? It's not a political organization. I don't think you would ever get that, would you? 
I don't think you would ever get that the church would make political decisions or that politicians would make decisions for the church. You wouldn't see that in the church, would you? I mean, just the overall view. Uh, Lloyd-Jones always says, don't miss the wood for the trees, right? Don't just get into the particulars. The overall view you look at first. The church are enclaves of non-political groups, all right? That doesn't mean we have no influence in the world and we don't try to influence politicians. We do and we should. Um, But the church itself, the government of the church, we saw this during COVID. All of a sudden, there was a superintending authority who was telling the churches how to live, how far apart to sit, how to sing or not to sing, in fact, not to gather. And we'll let you know when you can get back to being the church. We've got to be careful about things like that, all right? And we saw what happens when that happens. So it seems to me from statements like this one that the insistence of some denominations to use only priestly-approved liturgies is a foreign concept to the New Testament. That's liturgical churches. And I'll throw in the Anglican church, the Catholic church, some of the great churches um, who we still regard, um, at least some of them we still regard as, as brothers in Christ. I'm just saying, as we go to this, it seems to me um, what we're seeing here is a much freer, more spiritual approach to worship. And I'll show you what I mean. There's a sort of spontaneous element that is evident in the New Testament. There's an implicit freedom in worship. If you prophes- if you have a gift of prophecy, then prophesy. If you have a gift of teach- teaching, then teach. It's sort of a freedom and a spontaneity in that. From 1 Corinthians, he goes further. He writes, There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. There are diversities of activities, but it's the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. And then he writes this. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another different kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues, but one and the same Spirit works all things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. In other words, worship is entirely spiritual. It's governed by the Holy Spirit. Now, this freedom of expression, for the sake of all, has become lost to us in these times, it seems to me. And I point out that even those charismatic congregations where there's more tolerance of individual expression of gifts, I've seen such things become demonstrably inauthentic. I've been in great groups um, thousands of people worshiping and everyone muttering in some unknown tongue, I walked away from it thinking it was contrived. I didn't feel satisfied or that it was connected really to the spirit. I felt that they were done for show or for the sake of being spiritual. But what's worse, is it wrong to seek to allow the spontaneity of the spirit to fill the saints at worship? Is it wrong to seek to allow the spontaneity of the Spirit to fill the saints at worship? We know that though God is sovereign, we still run into the problem of quenching the Spirit, don't we? Or is it still worse to squelch any hope of a real intrusion of the Spirit by the insistence upon the use of formal prayers and prescribed liturgy? It's become all too easy it seems to me, all too simple a matter for Reformed churches like us to simply dismiss spiritual spontaneity as having passed away. I know people do that. I know they talk about the cessation of the gifts. I'm not willing to go that far with them because it's so unsatisfying to me. Paul wrote so much on this subject. Am I really just to say, well, that's not for us anymore? In other words, spirituality, the Holy Spirit intruding into the worship, that can't happen anymore. So we have to write out our liturgies just so we have something to do when we get here. I've always hoped 
for genuine revival to come upon the churches in a way we've not seen in our lifetimes. And so it's by sincere belief that we will be only so structured as we need to be to preserve order, and order is still important, right? It can't be a pop-up prophecy clown show. Paul wrote, 1 Corinthians 14, 40, let all things be done decently and in order. Or he wrote, if someone comes in from among you who's not one of you, he'll think you're out of your mind, he said. So where spiritual gifts are concerned in the corporate expression of the speaking gifts, Paul writes this, if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an uninformed person comes in, he's convinced by all, he's convicted by all, and thus the secrets of his heart are revealed, and so falling down on his face, he'll worship God and report that God is truly among you. In other words, if everyone in the church uses the unction of the Spirit within them, to witness to the unbeliever, Paul says he will be convinced and convicted and see himself for what he is, a sinner in need of Christ. That's pretty powerful. And that's all Holy Spirit inspired. So how have we come so far from the mode of worship we see in the New Testament? Well, it comes from a variety of causes. Firstly, such things as prescribed prayers and liturgies probably came with good intent. From the 4th century, where all things Roman and all things pagan and popular and traditional things were added, so were prescribed prayers and prayer books added. This goes back to the 4th century. Constantine, you've heard of him. You've heard me talk of him. Great influence on the church was the first Roman emperor to, to declare himself a Christian, and he made great changes, but he came in right, a secular authority, and began to organize the churches, all right? And so, for reasons of his own, whether they were spiritual or political, and due to the fact that there were so many Christians by that time, the emperor signed the Edict of Milan, which gave Christians back their property and assured they would not be persecuted anymore and that they could worship according to their conscience. But like all good things like all good intentions, over time they depart from the teaching of Scripture and they add certain rites and practices for immediate political expedience, and so they depart from the teachings of Paul and the apostles. Constantine did a good thing in inviting the local bishops of the land to the conference at Nicaea. In fact, we sign on to the creed the Nicene Creed. In doing so, he codified the deity of Christ. Friends, if there's a foundational principle of Christianity, it's that Jesus Christ is God. And if there's a second codifying principle, it's that we're justified by faith. And when Constantine's Roman Church became the Roman Catholic Church, they too held on to the doctrines of Nicaea that Christ was God, but they hid from us for a thousand years the fact that we're justified by faith. They took away our essential access into God's love and supplied us with rituals and superstitious um, additives like the mass and the praying to the saints and all of these things that came about. Now, such things didn't happen at once, nor were they decreed by Constantine, but over time, certain elders who were now called bishops were given authority over networks of individual local churches, hence a a college of cardinals and that kind of thing. You don't see any of that even hinted at in the New Testament. If I may say so, um, up until that time, it was... Government by the Holy Spirit, now it's government by the ecclesiastical authority of Rome, whether they were religious men or not. They were just appointees. Paul was content to let the Holy Spirit continue to lead the church, but Constantine was not. And I've always found it interesting that the Apostle Peter um, took for himself the honor of the first pope. Have you heard that? I always found that theory interesting. Peter was the first pope, we're told. Um, That would have come as a great surprise to Peter. Um, 
Such an idea was not only foreign to the New Testament, but it was foreign to Peter himself, who did away with the priesthood. He wrote these words, You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. He's writing to the saints, not to the bishops. You're a holy nation. You're his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people but now are the people of God. Doesn't sound like a self-appointed pope to me. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes this. He elaborates on that whole concept. He said, The Roman church, like the Roman Empire, was always keen on discipline, and she always wanted to standardize everything. And of course, let us agree, this problem of discipline is important and something had to be done about heresy. So after the Roman Empire became Christian, it was decided that the only way to deal with heresy was to prescribe the prayers to set them down and to say that these and these alone were the prayers that were to be offered, that led eventually to the full Roman system with all of the ritual and the ceremony. And then the question of the other sacraments were developed for each one. It became a vast organization, in a sense, with the Roman Catholic Church right through the Middle Ages. All the worship was conducted by the priests and the people were away in the distance somewhere, often not understanding a word of what was being said. Friends, that happened right up into my lifetime, where there was a, a mass in a foreign language. And my mother, being a linguist, was the only one in our neighborhood that knew what the priest was saying. But um, <clears throat> he goes further. It did not matter that they knew what the priest was saying, because it was what the priests did that mattered. And the people were remote taking no part except for some occasional responses which were indicated in the liturgy. So we took the Holy Spirit out of it and put human secular organization into it. So where did the priesthood come from? Do you ever wonder that? Where did it come from? Well, basically, there were certain cities, right? Some cities were more prominent and important than other cities. Rome would have been the most prominent. So the bishop from that city became the most prominent bishop. And he would have say over the other bishops. Eventually the bishop in Rome got to speak ex cathedra, where his word was the final word. Papal infallibility, they call it. It was only a matter of time before the bishop of Rome was not only head of the church and the sole interpreter of the written word of God, but he became supreme in the region as head of state as well. Imagine that. The head of the church is the head of the country. Friends, it was on Christmas Day in A.D. 800 when the Pope crowned Charlemagne the first emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. In other words, the Pope was above the emperor. It was a Pope and not an emperor in 1095 who called for the Crusades into the Holy Land. These men were supposedly church officials, and they're declaring war against other countries. Now, the New Testament recognizes no such power for ministers. It recognizes no such interference in regional and political affairs. And likewise, the New Testament does not recognize any secular authority over the church. We don't have authority over the country as church, as ministers, but they don't have authority over us either. And Paul will make those distinctions very clearly in the next chapter. Churches are governed from within. The only recognized Officers of the church are elders and deacons in the New Testament. And the Holy Spirit is the only one recognized to empower them in their respective offices. So such a picture of the church, of church government, of standards of worship, are completely foreign to the New Testament. In other words, the formal church, and I say it that way because there were always these little enclaves, the Lord always saved for himself a remnant of people who worshipped him according to scripture. They became a political creature never imagined by the apostles. The church became this political juggernaut. Tradition trumped scripture. 
and it still does in those circles. The priesthood itself, and so far as that goes, I include all of Anglicanism as well, is a monstrosity of scriptural perversion never conceived by Christ and never assisted by the Holy Spirit. It came about totally by building tradition upon tradition extra-biblically. And there's nary a hint of such things in the New Testament where simple congregations were led by simple men. But they were simple men like Peter and John. Remember from Acts 4.13 when they said, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained, they marveled. But they realized they had been with Jesus. In other words, the Holy Spirit educated them. They walked with the Lord, friends. They bathed in the word. They were open to the spontaneity of the indwelling spirit of God. And they worshipped in spirit and in truth. The very way that Jesus himself prescribed to another outsider who was bound to superstition and scriptural perversion. The woman at the well, you may remember, said to Jesus, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. In other words, why do you believe what you believe? Our fathers believed it, right? Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. And you Jews say something different. That we should worship in Jerusalem. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. Where did Jesus worship? I remember he called a worship service from a boat, a little rowboat, and he rowed out a few feet. He called a worship service in a field, on a, on a mount he called a worship service. They were all over the place, in a, in a Pharisee's house. Just before he told them off, he worshipped in his house. And Mary broke the spike knot and put it on his feet. You worship what you do not know. See, that's the problem. If you go extra-biblical, if you go outside of the prescription of the New Testament, you're not worshiping according to Christ. We know what we worship, he said to her. Salvation is of the Jews, but the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. I submit to you that's what we're doing right now. We're worshiping the Father in spirit and truth. In other words, if there's true worshipers, friends, there's false worshipers. Human traditions will not take the place of scriptural mandates. Good intentions do not supersede divine intentions. Churches are independent and self-governing local bodies, and the New Testament is the standard. And I am fearfully, I'm afraid to depart from the New Testament. Even when it becomes socially and politically expedient for the moment. Do you know that churches weren't allowed by secular constitutions to be self-governing until the United States Constitution made it that way. Did you ever realize that? I mean, even in Europe, where they had fights between Catholics and Protestants, and they had a 30 years war, and they had a 100 years war, and they had the English Civil War, where they killed King Charles I and imposed the, the Puritan government under Cromwell. All of this time, they always put the government in charge of the church. Did you ever realize that? This is the only experiment on earth where wise men who were um, bathed in Scripture recognized the church is not a creature of the political structure of the land. It's independent. It occurred to me, this is the first time it's been done. Maybe you hadn't thought of it that way. Churches are independent and self-governing, and I'm fearful to depart from that model. And I'll preach no other than the written word for the edification of the, of the churches, No human institution can nor has ever been invited to enhance or improve the government or worship practices of the true churches of God. When I want to fix the church, friends, I don't call the governor. And if he wants the churches to change, he won't have any success if he calls me. Right? I do what I'm told as a citizen, but not as a preacher. The working of the body of Christ is a simple thing, friends. It does not come with pomp and pageantry. It does not come with human intervention. It comes by the Spirit of God who lives among the gathered churches of the true saints. And so we read this from Ephesians where Paul wrote, He gave some to be apostles. 
some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Friends, if we're going to grow, we're going to grow as a body of individuals corporately exercising the spiritual gifts under the influence of the Holy Spirit. That's church government. That's New Testament church government. And let me give you this benediction. May the Lord's word to the church of Philadelphia become our inheritance. Where Jesus said to the church, I know your works. See, I've set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength. He's talking to a small church, right? Not a socially significant church at all. Not a church that's going to wage war on some foreign country. You have a little strength. You've kept my word. You've not denied my name. Indeed, I'll make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not but lie. Indeed, I'll make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you because you have kept my command to persevere. I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. O Father, through faith and your abundant grace, give us courage in these times to stand for the word of God. Sola Scriptura. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.